you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor, sometimes more than a pinch. It's Friday, January 14th, 2022. This is episode number 194. I'm Susan Sorries, the founder founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour and Conference, author of the children's book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's favorite grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Join us and over 23,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe and support our show. Today we're talking about Tennessee GOP representative and CBD business owner files a bill to regulate hemp, how microcultivators are winning in Canada, 2022 forecast for cannabis and psychedelic legalization, supply chain slowdown in California, what about the children and edibles, Italy on the road to legalization, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, part-time firefighter and cat herder, and director of operations at LB Atlantis. Her superpowers are overcoming obstacles and challenges with unstoppable energy. She's also an amazing daughter, friend, and activist. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, my headline this morning comes out of the Nashville scene, and boy, is it a scene. A bill was filed to tax and regulate cannabis products, including Delta 8. A Republican lawmaker is seeking to tax and regulate the existing cannabis industry in the state. Republican Chris Hurt filed the House Bill 1690 this week. The bill seeks to regulate psychotropic hemp-derived cannabinoids, which include products that have more than 0.1% THC, current federal regulations limiting THC to 0.3%. That includes products containing the newly popular Delta-8, but not pure CBD products, which do not contain THC. As a member of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Committee, a former hemp farmer and current owner of the CBD ProCare, a company uh, in Dryersburg, Hurt says he filed the bill in an effort to legitimize the industry. Interesting. According to Hurt the jo- and Joe Kirkpatrick of Tennessee Growers Coalition, who collaborate with Hurt and the writing of this bill, no other state has legislation that specifically taxes and limits the sale of hemp-derived cannabinoid products, which isn't false. People think that Tennessee is the last to do anything when it comes to hemp industry, Kirkpatrick says, but they are forgetting that Tennessee was the first state to allow and define smokable hemp and the first state to allow the feeding of hemp to livestock. 
also interesting. HB 1690 will do three things. One, it will create licensing requirements for retailers and wholesalers, establish a 6.6% excise tax on the wholesale of hemp-derived cannabinoids, and limit the sale of psychotropic hemp-derived products like Delta 8 to those 21 and older only. The bill would require retailers and wholesalers to apply for an annual $200 license through the Tennessee Department of Agriculture. And based on the licensing structure outlined, Kirkpatrick said it would expect the state to collect $160,000 annually in those fees. Licensees could be revoked or suspended at the discretion of the Department of Agriculture. Kirkpatrick estimates that 6.6% tax mod uh, model will, after the tax on the tobacco, could generate as much as 4 to $5 million in annual revenue for the state. Kurt and Kirkpatrick would like to see the money collected from the licensing and wholesale tax to increase the resources of the Department of Agriculture to ensure product safety. Again, very interesting. So, the lingering question. Well, the bill passes most of the responsibility of the Tennessee Department of Agriculture, but the department has yet to respond to a request for comment. Another lingering question. Whether the bill is a conflict of interest for Hurt who has ownership in a company that manufactures and sells products containing hemp-derived cannabinoids. It's frustrating when you hear that politicians who seem to be working for more for their own interests than the interests of the people that they serve, says Holly Ramsey, an advocate for the expansion of the Tennessee medical marijuana program. I'm hopeful that the focus will remain on the medical needs of the Tennessee patients and not the use of this plant for recreational purposes. Hurd says that he filed the bill in order to legitimize the industry to protect consumers and help him farmers in his district. So what's next? The second year of the legislative session, and it's in its early days, um, and it could take up to two weeks or months before lawmakers fully consider Hertz's proposal, which as of Thursday does not have Senate sponsors. So this will be interesting, and I hope that we all follow along to see what Tennessee does, but this is something that I think is going to be um, a bit of an avalanche with the rest of the country following suit pretty soon in regards to regulation of these other hemp-derived cannabinoids. And I'm Nicole West reporting for the State of Cannabis News. $200 to get a license to sell Delta 8 in Tennessee. Let's go. Yeah, but isn't this just bullshit because we're just going to have a lot of hot hemp fields again, you know, and everybody's going to test hot hemp fields. But that's, yeah. that, that's not, this is about Delta 8 uh, being regulated and Delta 8 is a conversion. So hot hemp is different than Delta 8 is a very different conversation. Hot hemp means that it tested as a plant prior to any conversions or anything to have more than 0.3% Delta 9 THC. That's hot hemp. Now, when we talk about what people have been doing, which is re-adding the Delta 8 to the hemp products that did not have Delta 8 prior, they're extracting out the CBD, converting it through the isomerization and then spraying it back on. That is not hot hemp. That's a different conversation. So this actually is creating a regulation in regards to who can and can't sell it. And so at the end of the day, I don't think it would create more hot hemp because hot hemp was uh, an issue in regards to Delta 9, not Delta 8. I, I find it interesting that uh, Representative Hertz CBD ProCare website is down. That's strange. But at the end of the day, um, this isn't going to stop. And the thing that I hope that people understand, it's not going to stop. Delta, it's not going to stop being made. We need to get a handle on this and put it within the regulated guise of the market. Um, full deschedulization is going to be the answer to this in all reality because the, the ability to transfer in and uh, sell across state lines is still going to be muddled as hell until we're able to have descheduling. But at the end of the day, I think this is going to be something that people need to watch because not regulating it is more of an issue than this, what's happening right now. 
We've got Joe Stallsworth up from the audience. Joe, did you want to weigh in on Nicole's headline? Yeah, I'm, so I'm actually I'm here in Knoxville, Tennessee right now um, working with Normal on legalization for a medical program. I just want to say I think it's funny that they mentioned uh, an expansion of a medical program here in Tennessee that really doesn't exist. Uh, it's not something that's readily available to patients. It's not something that is advertised as uh, most 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 constituents, most uh Residents here in the state still believe that hemp is illegal unless that they were involved in the 2019 uh, hemp crisis here in Tennessee. Um, I think it's an interesting bill. We'll just have to see where it goes and if it uh, actually helps with any other legalization efforts. Thank you so much for weighing in, Joe. Um, we've got a lot of educating to do, don't we? Uh, but we're at time on that headline, so we're going to keep moving. We've got a lot of news today. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is also a superstar at cracking dad jokes. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? What's happening, everybody? Uh, so today, my story is coming out of Benzinga. It's uh, Cannabis Chart of the Week. It's been better to be a lender than a borrower. So uh, before I get started here, I want to reiterate that the State of Cannabis News Hours, we do not give investment advice and recommend any interest in doing so with any of the companies listed in today's story or discovered elsewhere be discussed with between you and your licensed financial representative. And unless you got a time machine to get us back to 2017 before my license finally lapsed and said time machine is a DeLorean, I'm not interested. So let's get it, let's get it rocking. It's safe banking a Trojan horse waiting in the wings to deploy even more pain on an already ailing U.S. cannabis industry. Q4 lender data may have some safe supporters rethinking their approach. Well, at least their rhetoric, because we know no amount of info is going to get them to admit that they were wrong. Uh, cannabis-focused investment firm Viridian Capital Advisors created two equally weighted baskets of the biggest names in industry-friendly real estate sector stocks, including AFC Gamma, IIPR, New Lake, and Power REIT. Um, and pitted them against the top five MSOs by market cap, Curaleaf, GTI, TrueLeaf, Verano, and Cresco. And per the article, uh, the lender basket significantly or outperformed the MSO basket over the period, scoring a 5% gain compared to the MSO's 15% loss. Before anybody talks shit about the real estate sector not being a real representation of overall lending community, when it comes to cannabis, think again. Since mid-December, uh, the real estate sector has accounted for nearly 89% of $182 million total equity capital raised. Uh, we all know that thirsty, how thirsty cannabis companies are for loans right now, and Viridian's picks for this, this analysis can actually lend money at payday loan-esque premiums uh, compared to non-cannabis entities. Why? Economics 101, supply and demand. They got no competition. Where else y'all going to go? Banks ain't doing the right thing by working with cannabis entities in mass, um, even though the regional ones can, and they don't we really have to deal with uh, shareholder blowback or possible SEC compliance issues due to them being publicly traded. So real estate investment trusts, REITs, uh, are happy to carry that load, and they'll continue to make out like bandits. Um, it ain't looking like you're going to get any relief anytime soon either. Viridian says that the diverging performance of these two sectors signals a diminished belief in the likelihood of near-term banking reform or legalization. MSO stocks have continued to lag, and revenue growth has begun to slow down in several key states, 
And for those thinking safe banking will offer relief, including Viridian Capital, yes and no. It will allow borrowers to diversify and REITs will have to lower their premiums to stay competitive. Uh, but we'll most likely see more of a debt rebalancing uh, with around the same spend on platform lending fees and trading costs uh, to move around that capital. The cost for cannabis companies dealing with both REITs and traditional lenders will still be at a premium um, far beyond mainstream peers and out of budgetary reach for most non-MSO companies. The house always wins. And it ain't looking like the big boys uh, weren't banking on this happening either. Uh, when it comes to institutional investments, the number one question asked when diving into a new idea in an emerging sector, is it worth it? Right now, with all that we're seeing in, in the greater landscape, it only makes sense for them to work with the largest cannabis companies with billions of dollars backing them. Not smaller cannabis companies and certainly not cash-strapped social equity outfits who can barely keep their lights on month to month. Viridian goes on to say that short of legalization, there's only uh, one catalyst to ignite upward move in MSO stock prices, more significant M&A activity similar to what we've seen happening with Leave and Harvest Health. That's right. The biggest of the big will need to get bigger to survive themselves. On the upside, it looks like we're soon going to see our very own too big to fail companies sure to cost taxpayers more of their hard-earned cash down the line in an inevitable federal bailout sometime soon after legalization hits. I can't wait. This is Rico Lamite, the dopest dad in the planet. Reporting for State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear what the rest of the team has to say about this one. Back to you, Susan. The failure, I think, would actually give the opportunity for descheduling to happen. Or bust? Yeah. Deschedule or bust, because Cureleaf is, and I don't know about the other ones, they operate at a loss, so they just can undercut everybody else's prices. They all do. It's a race to the bottom. Well, yeah, and I and I do think, like you said, Rico, that these bigger money folks are just waiting us out. They're like, it's it's like a shell game of like, oh, we'll stay relevant, allow everybody else to fall off, and then we'll have reform just for us and our people. Like, it does feel like this is like a premeditated move against like the smaller guy. I can tell you, our company's midsize, and we're feeling the pain. Like, but we're not big enough where folks want to like keep us solvent. But they're just waiting for us to get sucked up into one of these larger organizations that can wait out regulations and wait for all the traditional market people to have essentially burnt out. And then I bet you they'll be offering tax incentives to all their like crony friends. Hell yeah, they will. I mean, people need to realize billions are not millions. <laughs> you can't compete with the bees. Straight up. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Rico, and everybody on that. Um, definitely something that we need to follow and uh, deschedule or bust, y'all. Uh, and up next, we have Liz Rogan. Liz is a cannabis educator, brand strategist, and the healthcare consultant, founder of Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. What do you have for us today, Liz? Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Nicole. Happy Friday, guys. Today, my story comes from MJ Biz Daily, and it's by Chris Kosechia. Uh, the headline reads, Supply Chain Crunch Hits California Marijuana Companies. This is nothing new, unfortunately. Just uh, want to highlight the issues that California cannabis companies are dealing with um, in these labor shortages. I'm sorry, California cannabis companies are dealing with amongst already facing labor shortages, high taxes, and piles of regulatory red tape. They are now contending with supply chain gridlock. Um, these constraints which have gripped the, gripped the global economy are a combination of pandemic-fueled labor woes, shipping, and product delivery delays, as well as rising prices on everything from raw materials to in 
equipment to fleets and utilities. So as we see in all businesses and arenas, the price surge comes as inflation is accelerating drastically. The logistics crunch and rising costs, no doubt, are affecting cannabis operators from coast to coast. But nowhere the effect is felt more immediately than in California, because 40% of the nation's maritime imports pass through the adjoining ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach alone. So in this article, they highlighted a couple companies um, that are dealing with a lot of these issues. One is Las Vegas-based Hara Supply, which is one of the world's largest pre-roll distributors. And they've seen container shipping costs from India jump from $3,000 prior to the pandemic to $25,000 today, which is a whopping 733% increase. A couple other com- companies that were mentioned in this article, one being Atlas Seed, is a Sonoma County-based supplier of cannabis seeds, and they say that their margins are plummeting because of these constant skyrocketing material costs. Nabis, or Nabis, a cannabis wholesaler distributor in Oakland, also has had many issues from with construction to supply. Many products are just waiting to be shipped out because of missing ingredients. Forefront Ventures um, also say they are competing with big tech in the automotive industry. So the problem is widespread enough that it's also affecting ancillary companies like cooling, heating, uh, irrigation, and others. They also mentioned the oversupply of, of flour and cannabis has cut into sales by reducing seed demand and prices. Saying in 2020, they'd experienced a seller's market for cannabis flour and able to make 70 to 80% profit margin, but last year's profit margin sank 80% on average, unfortunately reversing that. So unfortunately, this is uh, facing all of us in all areas, but this is a, this article just highlights um, how companies are trying to scramble to survive amongst the many challenges we have in the cannabis industry, but especially as the supply chain is, um, you know, just having a lot of issues. They're basically trying to stack up on raw materials. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that some of this is going to continue to highlight um, the companies that have a lot of money and are able to succeed, are are able to succeed, and then the smaller companies who don't have that kind of capital. Um, So this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. She's going to break. (laughs) it's going to break. It's going to be glorious. I've been having a lot of conversations with some of the bigger companies as far as like tech companies and that sort of thing. And I won't name any in specific, but a lot of companies have these like very, you know, strict uh, contracts that they're putting people in. And when we're having the conversation of these consolidations and bringing businesses to try to keep them solvent, um, I really think that it's up to a lot of these ancillary businesses to look when they have items, specifically looking at tech, right? There's not a ton of, and I know there's a lot of money invested in it, but when we're talking about it's not a tangible good in a lot of these situations, to be able to say, hey, we understand the situation. There needs to be some some give in some of these situations for some of these larger companies that are heavily backed financially that are, are selling, you know, essentially digital widgets. Um, you know, the weed maps is the leaf links, uh, all these companies, there needs to be people, you know, being looked out for in the industry. And it's just not happening yet. I hope this doesn't doesn't like keep pushing us down that M&A <clears throat> slide faster. I mean, it will, though. We know it will. Yes, we it will. <laughs> and, and, you know, the people that can afford to pay the extra money to get the containers off earlier are the ones that are going to get their material. And there's uh, rush fees, and it's uh, anywhere between 10 and 15 grand. You can get your sh- containers skipped in front of the line. So um, up next, <laughs> this dope Midwest mama is one of the top 25 women in cannabis making history, CEO of award-winning Original Breeders League 2021 MJ BizCon's coveted Golden Bong Influencer of the Year award winner, and most importantly, 
She is the Midwest queen of cannabis. Priscilla Atkinsillo, what you got for us? Dope dad, you do too much and I love it. Thank you so much. Hi everybody. My story today is a really great story. It did get posted on uh, the 5th of January, so it's a little dated, but it's still an amazing piece to cover. So it says, tiny but mighty, micro cultivators dominated in 2021. The past year was a big success for microcultivators as a number of license hold, holders across Canada continue to grow. Most licenses are still for standard cultivation overall, but micros are gaining momentum, both in the industry and with consumers. Journey of a microbrand isn't an easy one. They still have to maintain a successful company with high taxes, operating costs, paired with low prices for their products. It's always a challenge. Even when these challenges, um, uh, uh, even with these challenges, passion for the plant is prevailing. Uh, larger cultivators and consumers are taking note. Microcultivators in the Canadian legal, mar legal market, like Organic Craft, North Forty, MTL Cannabis, Weathered Islands, Origin Coast, and Black Kettle Farms, just to name a few, have been making waves in this last year with new products on the market that have been dominating in online reviews and sales in places like Twitter, YouTube, Reddit, Instagram, and TikTok. The people are speaking up. Cultivation licenses in Canada allow for growing, harvesting, drying, trimming, and packaging cannabis for bulk sale. To be licensed as a microcultivator, rooms can be no larger than 200 meters square in total. Uh, so what makes the micro so popular? Well, they're cannabis. Uh, Microcultivation of cannabis is like any other specialized crop. The yield is smaller, but the quality is higher. According to consumers, micros grow more flavorful and potent cannabis than anything that they were able to find with larger producer uh, companies. Microproducers in Canada are emerging as successful companies and brands with products that are delighting connoisseurs, connoisseurs and bringing more legacy consumers into the growing number of retail stores. Big cannabis companies are taking note of sales numbers and are now seeking partnerships. Larger licensed producers are reaching out to work with micros to bring their products into the market under their guidance. Uh, with these types of partnerships, micros can focus on high quality, small batch products, and the larger producers can rely on the market distribution and relationships with provincial distributors and retailers. A micro business owner said he's happy working this way because uh, the partnership is bringing scales of economy when it comes to things like cost of packaging and distribution, which make a huge difference for the micro business's bottom line. Uh, THC is still key in the industry right now. Uh, to uh, you need to have your your product at, test at twenty two to twenty three percent THC to get over three dollars a gram. Uh, so high THC flower might get upwards of three to four a gram wholesale, but smaller buds will get only around a dollar or could be rejected outright. Smaller operations are starting to work together to fill SKUs for larger operators. Microprocessors will be bringing more unique artisan products to the market, which is a gap that is still not fulfilled or fully developed. So the future is looking mighty bright for micro craft cultivators. Uh, I wanted to cover this article because, you know, every, all of the legacy operators in the U.S. market, you know, we're able to kind of see and, and foreshadow what's going to happen with the micro cultivators or the, the, the small craft batch growers uh, in the United States and, and, and in Canada, they're proving to be very, very successful. So I'm excited to report on this. This is Priscilla reporting for the SSE NewsHour. So small buds, even if they're over 22% THC, aren't selling as well. We really need to educate our consumers. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, they have these numbers on record for the Canadian legal, legal market. 
Uh, and this is really great news for the future of uh, micro licenses and, and craft cultivators here in the U.S. I do think educating the consumers is important, but also if we look at the American society that we live in as far as the way people buy things, people would rather buy a 64-ounce Mountain Dew than uh, you know 12-ounce like no sugar added natural uh, soda water, you know? So when we're having the conversation of like, what's actually better as the thing America's all about bigger, like, you know, volume quantity. And, and I, I don't know that no matter how hard we try to educate them on cannabis, that it's going to change until the society changes that we're in. Well, society, society needs to change. I was watching an older movie the other day, and they were drinking beverages, and they were in these tiny little glasses, soda, soda in tiny little glasses. And, and you know, as the glasses got bigger, so did we. Uh, I would... I am very excited about this, and thank you for bringing it, Priscilla. I live in a tourist area, and people here really want locally grown stuff, so... I think there's going to be a real place for legacy operators in the, you know, small craft market. And I'm really excited about that. Well, thank you so much for that headline, Priscilla. Uh, we will go ahead and jump to our next correspondent, Ms. Gretchen Gailey. Gretchen is the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our Washington Insider. What do you have for us today, Gretchen? Uh, good afternoon, Nicole. Today, my headline comes from Marijuana Moment. Marrow, oh, screw it. Marijuana Moment. Uh, these legal states could legalize marijuana or psychedelics in 2022. Please bear with me. There are a lot. Uh, kick it off the list. Arkansas. There are three campaigns working to give voters a say in whether Arkansas should legalize adult use marijuana in 2022. Delaware, a legislative effort to legalize marijuana for adult use in Delaware, died for the 2021 session following disagreements among lawmakers over social equity funding. But that effort could be revived in the new year with national advocates listing the state as a top target to enact legalization next. Hawaii. A Hawaii bill to legalize recreational marijuana that cleared the Senate last year is still alive for the 2022 session, and it's possible that the legislature will move to take it up again. Idaho. In Idaho, activists with one campaign are moving forward with plans to put medical cannabis legalization on the state's 2022 ballot, while another set of advocates have decided to suspend a campaign to legalize possession due to complications resulting from the coronavirus pandemic. Kansas, a medical cannabis bill that passed the House last year, is still alive and poised for action in the Senate in 2022. Kentucky, a Republican-led bill to legalize medical marijuana in Kentucky, landed in the state legislature this month. The measure is an update to lead sponsor Representative Jason Neems' past legalization efforts and includes a number of conservative-minded adjustments aimed at winning broad support among lawmakers, including leaders of his own party who control the legislative agenda. Maryland. Uh, late last month, a top Maryland uh, lawmaker pre-filed a bill to put adult-use marijuana legalization on the state's 2022 ballot. The legislation, which seeks to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot, has been designated House Bill 1, signaling that it will be prioritized. Minnesota. Uh, the year 2021 saw a bill to legalize marijuana in Minnesota move through a dozen House committees and then get approval by the full chamber, but it subsequently stalled in the GOP-controlled Senate. Lawmakers are ready to take up the reform fight again in 2022. Our favorite, Mississippi. Mississippi lawmakers are moving ahead with a proposal to legalize medical cannabis in the state. 
uh, although they have faced some resistance. That's an understatement. Uh, Missouri, there are currently two separate campaigns working to get legalization initiatives on the Missouri 2022 ballot. In addition to legislative proposals to enact the reform, Legal Missouri 2022 kicked off its campaign last month with plans to deploy hundreds of signature gatherers at major cities throughout the state. Nebraska. Nebraska activists are fed up with the GOP-controlled legislature blocking efforts to enact marijuana reform, and so they are making another push to put medical cannabis legalization on the 2022 ballot. New Hampshire. New Hampshire's House of Representatives kicked off the 2022 session by approving a bill to legalize the possession and cultivation of marijuana by adults 21 and older. It now heads to the Senate, where cannabis reforms have had a tougher time advancing in the past, but there are other pending proposals from lawmakers to enact broad legalization, including three to place constitutional amendments on the ballot for voters to decide on the reform in November. North Carolina, a proposal to legalize medical cannabis in North Carolina advanced through three Senate committees last year, and advocates are optimistic that the reform could be taken up again in the new year. North Dakota, marijuana legalization could come to North Dakota either through an act of the legislature or on the ballot this year. Ohio, activists and lawmakers in Ohio are hoping to get reform enacted in 2022. Last month, Ohio activists submitted to the state whether what they said was enough signatures for an initiative to force lawmakers to take up the issue of legalization. Uh, Oklahoma, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, uh, and Wyoming all round out the list of other potential states to legalize. Um, I think it's a great thing that I'm hearing Oscar music on a list of states that are trying to legalize uh, cannabis for the upcoming year. Uh, The one thing that I do want to point out is pretend all of this stuff happens. That'll bring adult use states to 29 and medical use states to 44. Uh, And those are numbers that Congress, I don't believe, can deny and are going to have to take a canvas. This is from the State of Cannabis News Hour. Uh, We're going to quickly relight the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. She's a Master of Divinity, Juris Doctorate, Graduate Tax Scholar, repping Georgetown Law, focusing on cannabis and psychedelics. Go Hoyas. This tax activist is working hard to de- expand safe access, protect religious freedom, and promote social justice in cannabis, psychedelics, and tax law. And you got to respect the fact that she stays lit, man. Victoria Littman, happy Friday. What you got for us? Hi, thanks for that. I was ready for you to ask me if I was lit today. I'm like a little, you know, a little lit this morning, but happy to be here. And my headline today comes from United Press International, or UPI, and reads, Incidents of people driving high rises with marijuana legalization. The article starts, Here's more evidence that marijuana may make driving more dangerous. As pot has been legalized in more countries and states, a greater number of people are driving intoxicated by the drug and crashing, researchers report, even though that's like not really what the research says. Anyways, according to a new report published Thursday in the New England Journal of Medicine, THC has been detected in twice as many injured Canadian drivers since 2018, when cannabis was first legalized. The same effect is being seen in the United States, said lead researcher 
Dr. Jeffrey Brubrocker, an associate professor um, at UBC in Vancouver. From this, you might think that the evidence is damning, but the article goes on to cite scientists that say there's no evidence that low THC levels are associated with an increased risk of causing an accident, and a warning that all of this research must be interpreted with caution, as it can be extremely difficult to establish causality for any given car crash, especially since there's no rough side test for THC, and THC stays in the body for days or weeks after the last use, and it's often combined with alcohol, uh, in these accidents. The article does give some details of the study, which analyzed levels of THC in blood samples from more than 4,300 injured drivers who were treated in trauma centers between 2013 and 2020. Um, it rose to nearly 9% from 5% of drivers who had a THC content above the legal limit in Canada, which makes sense because people are smoking more pot. It's legal. <laughs> Brubacher said how much pot is consumed before getting behind the wheel also matters and advises delaying driving after consuming. Based on these data, he advises people not to drive for four hours after smoking pot and eight hours after ingesting it. He also cautioned that the combination of alcohol and pot can be especially deadly. Um, according to Paul Armentano, deputy director of Normal, uh, similar increased prevalence data has also been reported in the U.S. states, some of them like Washington, without any statistically significant uptick in traffic fatalities. So that's the study. More THC showing up because it's legal and people are using it more and they're testing for it. Um, but again, they're only testing people who are already in accidents. Once they're there, they can't tell how long it's been in their system. They can't say that it causes it. I don't know. But what I would love to use studies like this for is uh, which suggests that we need to give people more time after consumption is evidence that we need people, places for people to consume cannabis, just like we do have with alcohol. It just makes no sense to me that in states where there is adult use cannabis, you can't open a cannabis bar as easily as an alcohol bar. Uh, but we all know that these overly regulated markets are bullshit and need to change. So I want to hear from my fellow correspondents uh, or anyone tuning in. Do you think we need to wait four hours after smoking to drive? If it's only an hour per drink, should it be an hour per bong rip or bowl? Or I don't know what this means for medical patients. I'm excited to hear from you. I'm Victoria with the State of Cannabis News Hour. We've got Nicole Buffong up from the audience. Nicole, did you want to weigh in on Victoria's headline? <laughs> Yes, thank you, uh, Susan. Um, so in the state of Nevada, last session, we got cannabis consumption lounge bills passed as well as reform on the DUI bill. So before in the state of Nevada, as long as you had THC present in your blood stream, um, let, uh, more than 0.2 nanograms of THC, uh, then you were considered intoxicated at the time of your accident and therefore received a penalty. Um, we got it changed and adjusted to make sure that now there are road tests that you have to do on site. And if you can't, um, there are other ways to determine whether or not. So you have the, the a way to determine whether or not you were intoxicated at the time of the accident because of THC. I just wanted to add that. Thank you, Thank Nicole. You. And we've also, if you want to check out our replay on the 12th or our podcast, Nicole covered a new method to flag uh, cannabis impairment that Harvard uh, came up with. So there's uh, exciting things on the horizon. This is a, a story that we'll be covering quite often, but let's keep smoking the news. And up next, we have Guy Ricourt. Guy is our legacy legend turned legal and the co-founder and president of Papa and Barkley, as well as the 22 advisory board member for the Cannabis Conference. Guy, what do you have for us today? Hey, good morning. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Rico and Susan. Uh, yeah, I think uh, you meant to say Cannabis Business Times. Uh, okay, so this article is coming out of the New York Times. It says more young kids are getting sick from cannabis edibles. And not unlike the last article, more weed more incidences, but what does this all mean? So this article, of course, by uh, Christina Karen, goes on to tell us how more 
children are accessing cannabis and more children are getting in trouble. And nationally in 2016, 187 cannabis uh, exposures amongst uh, edible exposures with kids under 12. And according to uh, the American Association for Poison Control, by 2020, that number had risen to more than 3,100, and the majority of children were under five years old. Um, this is, you know, clearly problematic, and it's hard to uh, argue with safety, but we have to get more into the numbers, right? They cite one case, Oliver, who wasn't two, had accidentally gobbled 15 milligrams, about 75, 15 gummies, about 75 milligrams of THC. He, of course, uh, became lethargic, started to seize. Parents had to take him to a hospital, but he did recover as all these cases have recovered. And the reason why I bring that up is while this article is great and, you know, somewhat accurate, it's clearly trying to make it seem like this is specific to cannabis and a specific problem. Childproofing edibles or keeping your kids safe is all of our jobs, the parents' jobs, and it, it, it can't really be pinned to a product. Susan had sent me another thing showing that just to give you guys a sense of, of relative numbers, we've had a lot more hand sanitizer out recently. So you guys would be surprised to find out that kids under 12, so far in 2021, it's been reported that 15,867 exposure cases involving hand sanitizer under with children under 12. In August, it was 1,900 cases, which is 200 cases more than uh, were reported in June and July. I think it's important for us to note as we go through articles like this, that one, more cannabis means also more parents thinking they have the legal right to tell their physician this happened, right? But there's just an uptick. But again, relative numbers, opioids, which I think cannabis should be replacing, period, point out. It's important to know that in uh, a study by the same JAMA that is one of the site, one of the study, uh, uh, the the Alfred had studied for this New York Times article pointed out that 2,000 children a year were hospitalized for opioid poisoning, and a small number, about 30 a year, were died after being hospitalized. So let's be clear that there are things out here that are killing kids that are just as widely available, barely as childproofed. Alcohol being one of them. I did not look up the alcohol stats. So while Again, it's hard to, it sounds foolish to argue with safety. And whenever children are on the line, people freak out. But yes, there has been an uptick in kids getting access to edibles, but there's been an uptick in kids getting access to opioids and hand sanitizer. And ultimately, this becomes a parental problem, in my opinion, not a problem of re-demonizing cannabis as if we should not all have safe access because some folks were unable to complete their parental duties. That's my personal opinion. That's not necessarily what's reflected in the article. The article, in fact, I feel leans us towards like, oh, look, see, this is what happens when you legalize cannabis. Uh, it doesn't speak about safety, about dosing, about childproofing and all the things we've done as an industry to better our position. But any case, I'd love to hear what everybody thinks. This is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I'm so glad that you did this article and you did a great job because I saw it too and I had the same reaction. So just that I agree with you totally. And it's so frustrating. Guy, I agree with you completely. Uh, approximately 5,000 young people under the age of 21 die as a result of underage drinking. Yeah, that, kind of data does, that kind of data just doesn't fit the narrative for them, unfortunately. We're going to see more and more of this bullshit. I don't know why People folks feel that allergic. cannabis shame is still a thing. Like, again, similar to like all the we need 
folks, if, if listeners are listening, go out and tell one, each one, teach one. Cannabis shame is a real thing, and we need to step back from it. We're constantly demonized. One thing goes wrong, and it's like it, we, it just piles on, and all the history of the past comes up, and it's just not fair anymore. At one point, we have to have fair and balanced conversations around cannabis and understand that we have 100-plus years of cannabis shame. It's like systemic is the only word I can use to describe it. And there's cannabis sh- haters on the New York Times. I've seen a couple articles. Mm, cannabaters, cannabaters. So we're at the end of the road for that story. Up next, she is a pot-loving PhD pushing for cannabis policy on everyday people and an outside-the-box activist who remains optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. You know who it is, Menika Mahajan. What you got for us this morning? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Thank you so much, Rico. I am reporting from Politico today, and Natalie Fertig's headline reads, Talk about clusterfuck, why legal weed didn't kill Oregon's black market. This is a long article, over 3,000 words, so I'm going to give highlights, and you can click the pinned link for the full article. The fundamental question this piece addresses is, why do we still have an unlicensed market after legalization? By focusing on Oregon to illustrate the issue, Natalie, uh, Natalie shows us some of the, some of the problems uh, that have led to this outcome, but she also refers to California and Oklahoma, which face similar problems. In Oregon, where cultivation has been legal since 2014, the state's legal industry is worth $1.2 billion. And it's estimated that 80 to 85% of the state's demand is met by the legal market. But most of the illicit weed grown in southern Oregon is leaving the state, heading to places where legal weed is not available for purchase or where the legal price is still very high. What's happening in the woods of southern Oregon represents one of the most confounding paradoxes of the legalized marijuana movement. States with some of the largest legal markets are also dealing with rampant illegal production, and the problem is just getting worse. Oklahoma, where licenses to cultivate medical marijuana, cannabis, are some of the easiest to get in the nation, has conducted more than five dozen raids on illicit growth since last April. In California, most of the state continues to purchase cannabis from unlicensed sources, straining legal operators that are already struggling with the state's high taxes and fees, which we've been talking about a lot. The problem has gotten so bad in Oregon that residents and local officials have called for the Oregon National Guard to be called in. Democratic Governor Kate Brown hasn't taken that step yet, but she did call for a special session in which lawmakers approved $25 million to address Oregon's illicit growth. $20 million of that is designated for law enforcement to increase staff and resources, and $5 million is dedicated for oversight of water use and water theft. Here are some of the reasons given for the persistence of the so-called black market. Outsiders purchase property and set up operations in heavily forested remote areas. And local law enforcement enforcement officials believe that people from every U.S. state and as many as 20 countries have purchased property in Jackson or Josephine counties. Cartels roll in and offer longtime residents as much as a million dollars in cash for their property, and the hoop houses follow soon after. The article claims that such operations are run by Bulgarians, Chinese, Mexicans, Argentinians, to name a few. Number two, they're not deterred by raids. For cartel operations, raids are just a cost of doing business, according to law enforcement officials. Number three, officials believe these official these illegal gar- farms excuse me, are masquerading as hemp farms. Economist Bo Whitney disagrees. Focusing on hemp regulations is a misplaced solution because many cartels don't hide behind those, those types of licenses. What he says is the real problem is international cartels, and until there's coordinated enforcement against them, this is going to perpetuate. 
Reason number four, geography makes this problem more likely in some states than others. John Hudak of Brookings says there's sort of a geographic aspect to why this thrives in certain states. And it's more likely to happen on a large scale in larger states with rural spaces than it would be in smaller urban states. Reason five, differences in tax rates and regulations from state to state. Unlicensed growers aren't paying any fees or taxes, and they can afford to keep their prices at least 20% lower than legal weed. And finally, cannabis is federal status. The illicit market will continue to thrive in legal states as long as cannabis remains federally illegal. The problem, cannabis advocates say, is not that legalization has failed. Rather, it's that the country hasn't legalized enough. Until more states and the federal government decide to legalize cannabis, the illicit weed problem is going to continue, even in legal states. It's the patchwork, including some of the states, the country's most populous states, that creates a too tempting market for illicit growers. Combine this with the disparity in cost between licensed and unlicensed market segments, and many businesses and consumers continue to prefer to conduct commerce outside the legal market. This is Menika Mahajan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Um, Todd is up from the audience. Todd, we're at time, uh, so 10 seconds if you can. Yes, I will. Thanks, Susan. The reason why I believe uh, it really is happening up there in Oregon, meaning the the unregulated market continues to flourish, like here in California, is because the weed's better, the customer service is better, and the price is better. That's really why the unregulated market continues to thrive. I'm done. Not so sure about that customer service, though. Uh-huh. Traditional market has the best customer service. Yeah, come on, that's, you know that. That's, come on now. Come on now, Todd. I got a guy, Jack, I can introduce you to. Uh, I would have to agree. The traditional market has drastically better customer service than the majority of the regulated market, unfortunately. Um, up next, we have Mr. Jason Beck. Jason will argue and make sure that he lets you know that his customer service is amazing because he's the longest-running retailer in the history of United States Cannabis. He's also our very own Kaiser Brose. What do you have for us today, Jason? Uh, Good morning, Nicole. Thank you so much. Today, my story comes out of Mississippi, where it's a very sad story. So trigger warning in advance. This is a very sad story, and I do not condone this type of behavior whatsoever. Where a one-year-old tests positive for meth, marijuana, and ecstasy, and the mother was arrested. Jones County, Mississippi, a Jones, a Jones County woman is facing a charge of felony child abuse after a child reportedly tested positive for several drugs, including methamphetamine and ecstasy. Jones County Sheriff's Office Investigator Sergeant J.D. Carter said 28-year-old Victoria Bolin was arrested Tuesday morning. On January 5th, 2022, we received information that Ms. Bolin's one-year-old tested positive for methamphetamines, marijuana, and MDMA. Uh, back in December of 2021, while she had custody of her child. Carter said the child is no longer in Boland's Boland's custody, and uh, the child has since been in the custody of family members and is is in a safe place. Uh, Boland is also being held at the the Jones County Jail as she awaits her initial court appearance. Yeah, this is just a tragic story. Uh, Parents need to definitely uh, be more responsible. I think that's kind of been a theme of the show, just from even Guy's uh, episode or Guy's article as well. And so uh, people that want to be parents need to step up and be parents. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Yeah, there's a lot that's not being said here. Why is this child's blood being tested? So there's just like a whole story that's here and marijuana is just getting swept up in it. It's not cannabis's fault. It's the parents' fault. Yep. The fish rots from the head.
All right. So even Marvel comic fans love getting high while listening to the State of Cannabis News Hour's very own Clark Kent stories, probably because our Superman in disguise makes more sense than any of that multiverse of madness bullshit. That's right. He's a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Up next is Christopher Smith. What you got for us today, my man? Thanks for the great intro, Rico. Good morning. Uh, this is the third story I wrote up for today's show, which is a long story in itself. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, number three of three is from Willamette Week of Portland, Oregon. Soon to be banished from grocery shelves, ma- uh, makers of some hemp-infused candies are threatening to leave Oregon. So last year, Christine Smith put her new candy on the shelves of New Seasons Market, Snooze Fruit Chews Promised Restful Sleep. In the past 18 months, the candies have become a tentpole of her Portland business, Grown Chocolate, which grosses $14 million a year from chocolate bars and fruit chews infused with compounds from marijuana and hemp plants. Snooze fruit chews on grocery shelves make up one-third of Grown's $3 million in annual sales outside of dispensaries. But Snooze, which is infused with compounds from hemp, not marijuana, doesn't contain only CBD or cannabidiol. Its main draw is that it contains CBN or cannabinol or cannabinol. The article says CBN became a popular ingredient in edibles only two years ago when several companies created new production methods for processing it from hemp through a machine that prematurely ages CBD. Oregon state cannabis regulators are now saying CBN is defined as an artificial ingredient. Oregon's removing CBN products from grocery stores starting July 1st, limiting future sales to dispensaries only. It's the only state in the country that's raised a red flag about CBN, and guess what's also on their list? Delta 8. Edible makers say because CBN doesn't get anyone high, the commission should leave CBN alone. They say it's worrisome that the OLCC, uh, Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission, is using its new authority to arbitrarily ban things, says Parton Lee of Wild, also in Oregon. But state regulators argue that any chemistry experiments on hemp need government supervision. Whether it's intoxicating or not, that's kind of a secondary concern, says Stephen Crowley, the OLCC's hemp specialist. The primary concern is whether it's manufactured in a way that's safe to consume. It's not the standard of any other food or dietary supplement ingredients to sell something for 18 months and, if it's okay, keep selling it. The whole premise is that we don't experiment on humans when we sell things. The two biggest CBN edible makers in the state, Grown and Wild, are threatening to leave Oregon over the ban, which is the cannabis version of It's My Ball. I'm taking it home. The state thinks they're bluffing, and besides... If they're already selling inside dispensaries and are licensed to do so, as Bugs Bunny used to say, what's the hubbub, bub? What do you think, Rico? It's some bullshit. (laughs) I wonder. I I think it's a strangely reported story. I mean, realistically, I think a lot of people moved to places like Oregon or Oklahoma because there was so much openness to do this. And it was, you know, a poor business decision to think that you were going to be able to do that forever, realizing that the cannabinoids do fall under regulations, not just under the farm bill. So I I think that this is like a a no-brainer that it was going to happen eventually. And also take your fucking ball and go home then. (laughs) Right. Where are you going to go? The stream of like designated all the cannabinoids is safe and then they can just be in anything and not overly regulated. It just is like ridiculous. Well, I don't know. 
these these the conversion of cannabinoids is a big concern that we have too right we're having the conversation of isomerization and realizing that they go from one cannabinoid to another and the stability of these cannabinoids are not quite where we can say shelf stable it'll stay this way so the idea that it is cbn and not one of the other cannabinoids that it could have isomerized from or to is is you know neither here nor there especially without strict regulation Science, what concept? All right. Well, thank you so much for that story, Superman. We are very thankful. Up next, we have Anna Mead. Anna is a technical and legal writer. What do you have for us today, Anna? Thank you, Nicole, and thank God it's Friday. My story comes from the Hemp Gazette out of Australia. Endometriosis and Medical Cannabis Use in Australia and New Zealand by Gillian Jamison. Another report on Australian women using medical cannabis to help manage endometriosis endometriosis has been released. Endometriosis is often painful and sometimes debilitating condition where the tissue, similar to the lining of the womb, grows outside of it. It's estimated that more than 10% of Australian women experience endometriosis at some point in their life. So it's a significant medical issue when it is particularly severe in cases and results in infertility. The, the international statistic is 10% of women of childbearing age uh, suffer from this, which equals 190 million women worldwide. Drug treatments range from simple pain relief um, to uh, progesterone and menopause-causing medications or more invasive approaches like laparoscopy and hysterectomy. While access to legal medical cannabis is available in both countries, stigma, regulatory red tape, and cost may be putting off many from using the legal pathway. The research from Western Sydney University, based on the results of an online survey, indicates 72% of Australian and 88% of New Zealand respondents report self-administrating cannabis illicitly. 5% of um, Australian and no New Zealanders report using legally accessible cannabis. 20% respondents did not disclose their cannabis use to their doctor for fear of legal repercussions, judgment, or their doctor's response or willingness to prescribe it. While the evidence of substantial substitution effects by ca cannabis was demonstrated, the concerns the clinicians have of using cannabis without medical supervision, particularly with regard to drug interactions or tapering or succession of other medications without supervision. However, the attitudes of some doctors towards medical cannabis use is changing and legal access is easier than just a few years ago. But it's apparent more work needs to be done. Um, the survey, a little bit on that, substi substantial substitution and 50% reduction was absorbed in non-opioid allergesics, opioids, hormonal therapy, antineurotrophics, antidepressants, depressants and anti-anxiety medications. So clearly cannabis is substituting for more um, rigorous or more dangerous pharmaceuticals and I'm happy about that. And this is Anna reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Is there anyone in the audience using cannabis for endo... I can't say it. <laughs> Endometriosis? Thank you. You're welcome. Rico, are you using it? No, I was just going to say the picture in that link is... <laughs> It's something else. It's crazy, right? I don't have endometriosis, but I do. I can like speak to the quality of cannabis salve for cramps or general like, you know, woman pain. That's a weird way to say it, but it really does help. Like I use it every month, and I like swear by it. And people think it's so crazy. I'm a big. We've got oh, sorry. We've got Janice Stallings up from the audience. 
Jana, did you want to weigh in? My friends, yes. Uh, personally, no. But I can tell you I've helped three women immensely um, improve their health and well-being with cannabis and their endometriosis plus empower body care empower oils out of Oregon was literally made for these two ladies who had endometriosis thank you Goldie we're at time but you've got the last oh, word Carol, using dis- <laughs> suppositories has been a lifesaver with endometriosis cannabis um, with root. Awesome. Yes. Working with a lot of patients, I have seen amazing results from this with suppositories and other things for women from not only increasing beta carophylline in their diet, but really helpful. All right. Let's wrap it up with Lara. All right. So she is the founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, Badass Cannamom, and believe it or not, vocal experts debate over (laughs) over the fact that she is Something like a human saxophone siren reading cannabis news headlines. Lara DeCaro, what you got for us? Hi, guys. Um, yeah, well, thanks for squeezing this in. I um, wasn't sure I was going to be able to talk today. So um, anyway, my article is about Italy. Uh, Italian officials have certified signatures for the National Marijuana and Psilocybin uh, Referendum. Uh, about three months after the advocates turned in uh, around... 630,000 signatures for the measure. Um, It will legalize personal cultivation and other psychoactive plants like psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, The Supreme Court of Cassation informed the campaign that it had validated them. So now that those signatures are confirmed, the referendum goes to their constitutional court, which determines the legality of the proposal's provisions before it's sent for a vote. So kind of backwards to what we do here, where we just wait for it to pass, and then our elected officials challenge the constitutionality. Um, So anyways, the advocates are confident that they limited the scope of the proposed reform enough to meet the the legal standard. And if the courts allow it to go forward, um, it will be decided by the people's simple majority vote sometime this spring. Uh, But don't pack your bags just yet. According to this article, the Italian proposal would fully end the criminalization of growing cannabis, but would maintain the uh, current decriminalized fine on possessing, processing, and using it. So this doesn't necessarily go far enough, but it is a baby step. The um, the activists were able to collect the signatures after a rule change allowed them to do it uh, electronically, which I think is an amazing testament to what happens when we make it easier for people to speak up. My name is Lara DeCaro. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour, and I'm curious to see if anybody wants to go to Italy next year. Let's go. Perfect timing, Laura. You're a true professional. We've reached the top of the hour. That was a great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us anywhere you get your podcast and on our YouTube channel a few hours after the show. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Thank you, Nicole and Rico, for co-producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. Thank you to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience for attending every day and making us the stickiest new show here on Clubhouse. Tune in in five minutes for the break-off room about the church, state, and psychedelics. What could go wrong?
You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose.